The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the Ethiopian icon looted by an agent for the British Museum, a debate about AI and copyright, and we ask, is China's museum boom over? The art newspaper's London correspondent Martin Bailey tells us about the Querata Resu, a European painting of Christ that became a revered icon in Ethiopia before being looted by an agent for the British Museum in the 19th century. The work has been stored in a vault in Portugal and Martin's colour photographs of it might help us to identify its maker and prompt new calls for the icon's return to Ethiopia. On Monday this week, campaigners in the US staged an AI day of action amid mounting concerns over the exploitation of artists' work by corporations behind powerful artificial intelligence tools. I talked to our reporter, Daniel Grant, about renewed calls for the US Congress to enact a law that would ban corporations from copywriting art made by AI. And as China's economy struggles, some museums in the country are closing or scaling down their ambitions. I talked to our correspondent in China, Lisa Movius, about how the end of the Chinese economic miracle has hastened the end of its museum boom. A reminder that you can subscribe to the art newspaper by visiting our website and clicking the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. You can choose from a digital, complete or student subscription. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, the latest series of which features interviews with Yinka Shonabari, Claudette Johnson, Sarah Lucas and Torquase Dyson. And do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, we're beginning this episode with our work of the week, the Querata Reesu, a painting of the suffering Christ likely to have been made by a European artist in the 16th century. It found its way to Ethiopia, where it became a holy icon for successive emperors before being looted by an agent for the British Museum during the Battle of Magdala in 1868. Our London correspondent, Martin Bailey, tracked down the painting 25 years ago and took colour photographs then that are only now seeing the light as new information has emerged. It's likely to prompt further scholarship on the painting and to fortify Ethiopian claims for the work to be repatriated. I spoke to Martin about the painting and its remarkable story and you can see it on our Instagram and the web story for this episode at theartnewspaper.com. Martin, we're going to talk about this intriguing painting and its long history, its provenance and so on, but what do we know in terms of the basics? Who painted it and where did they paint it? We don't know, and that's why it was so intriguing, and that was why I wanted to pursue it. It was 25 years ago, in 1998, that I heard this famous painting, famous in Ethiopia, not outside, had disappeared, and Ethiopians were keen to track it down. Now, the painting is called the Queratu Risu in Ethiopian language, and it's a portrait of Christ, um, the suffering Christ, with the crown of thorns and with blood dripping down him. But what's interesting is it was painted in Europe and ended up in Ethiopia and was used by the Ethiopian emperors as an icon for over 500 years. Do we even know how it ended up in Ethiopia. Is there any documentation around that? We don't know how it ended up. There was little contact between uh, Europe and Ethiopia when the painting was done, which was be about 1520. And it was probably done by an artist in Flanders, in the Low Countries, 
possibly an artist in Portugal who was working in the Flemish style. But it's also possible that a European artist from Portugal actually worked in Ethiopia and painted it there. That's less likely, but possible. Right. And the fact that it's in Ethiopia is not necessarily a big surprise, is it? Because it was a Christian nation. Yes, indeed. Ethiopia was Christian way before we were in Britain. It was a religion uh, from the 4th century. And the Ethiopian church has a very sort of unique history, which I think few people outside really appreciate. Indeed. So we don't know anything about who painted it and how it got there or anything like that, but we do know that it became an icon of real significance in Ethiopia, don't we? Yes. I mean, the records showing that it was there by the 17th century, it was regarded as very important. It was carried around when the emperor travelled. There was a special tent for it, and on one occasion there was a fire in the emperor's camp, and the fire stopped just before it got to the tent where the painting, the Queratu Risu, uh, was saved. And from that point on, it was seen as a miraculous icon, possibly painted by St. Luke himself. Right. And in one instance, it was captured by Sudanese Muslims and so on. Yes. I mean, it was carried into battle on a number of occasions. And on one occasion, Sudanese Muslims captured it, ransomed it, and it was then brought back to Ethiopia. And the importance of the painting is that the hundreds, thousands, probably tens of thousands of copies of the painting in all sorts of churches, in manuscripts. And this shows that it was revered throughout the nation. Indeed. Now, one of the reasons that we're particularly interested in it at the moment, of course, is because of the atmosphere around looted objects and so on. And this, we know, was looted from Ethiopia and by an agent for the British Museum. Please tell us more. Yes, that's correct. Uh, Richard Holmes was sent by the British Museum as their agent to Ethiopia when there was a British military mission. And this ended with the Battle of Magdala in 1868. And the emperor was defeated, and he committed suicide, and he actually committed suicide by shooting himself with a pistol which had been presented to him by Queen Victoria when relations were rather better. And Richard Holmes went to Ethiopia to bring back manuscripts and antiquities for the British Museum. Now, what is strange or disturbing about this story is that he was supposed to hand over the material to the British Museum, but on his return he said nothing about this painting and he secretly kept it in his own private collection. And interestingly enough, he went on soon after working for the British Museum to become the Royal Librarian for Queen Victoria. So he probably took it to Windsor. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Because it really does show how agents who have so deeply connected to the state, to the monarchy, were involved in what we now know were really nefarious goings on in terms of looting and in terms of raids on other cultures. Yes, I mean, there was an enormous amount of important religious and secular material which was looted by British soldiers at Magdala. Um, but this one was actually a private looting for the benefit of Richard Holmes. And when I found the painting, I turned over the reverse and there's some silk. And on the back of the silk, Richard Holmes actually wrote, taken at Magdala on the, the date of the battle and signed it. So he had absolutely no shame about it. And it's conclusive proof that it was actually he who looted it. 
That's extraordinary, isn't it? And and is it right, this sort of chilling detail in your piece, he basically took it while the emperor's body was still warm, effectively? Yes. We have a deathbed sketch, which Richard Holmes did, because he was an amateur artist. And we've got the date when he took the painting, and he took it probably minutes after the emperor had died. And the painting was so important that the emperor actually hung it above his bed. So there was the dead body of the emperor lying on his deathbed, and just a few feet away was this painting hanging on the wall, and he just grabbed it. How extraordinary. And, of course, there's this curious moral quandary that he is facing. So he's looting this object, but also he's protecting it because he knows that British troops are coming and he doesn't know what they're going to do with it. They might even destroy it, I guess. Yes, we don't know what went on his mind. He must have been astonished to find a European painting that was then over 400 years old in the emperor's bedroom, if you like. He may have been concerned that he would appreciate its significance and that... uh, less educated British troops might not. So there might have been an argument that uh, he should have protected it. But if he did so, he should have been responsible and handed it over to the British Museum. Is there anything in his private correspondence or anything, do we know why he would have kept it? What on earth was his motivation for not fulfilling his duty, as it were, to the British Museum? Well, we don't know. He was relatively well paid by the British Museum, but, of course, even people who are relatively well paid sometimes like a little bit more. (laughs) He had a good art background, and he must have been intrigued about the painting, so I can imagine that he might have wanted to do further research. I was intrigued by it. I'm sure he was intrigued by it. So that might explain why he'd taken it in the heat of the moment. But it doesn't explain why he hid it away when he came back. And, of course, it next surfaces in 1905 in the form of an article in the Burlington to which he was connected. Yes, the Burlington magazine, which is the major art history magazine in the UK, published a black-and-white photograph of it in 1905. Now, you can imagine in 1905, photographs were not very good quality. (laughs) There was no name on the very short article about it, but uh, he was connected to the magazine, so he probably wrote the article... His son was its editor, is that correct? Or co-editor? Yes, that's correct, yes. So until I found the painting, no colour image of it had been published and we had such a bad idea of it with this very blurry, small black and white reproduction. Right. So you'd researched its progress. It had been sold at auction and so on in 1917 and then in 1950 and so on. And you tracked it down to Portugal. Yes. I found the name of the owner, who was a woman in Quimbra, which is in the north of Portugal, and I decided to get on a plane and uh, knock on her door, essentially. Classic journalistic (laughs) tactics here. Indeed. And I I then sort of phoned her the day before to ask whether I might be able to see the painting. She said it was in a bank vault, but would bring it out of the bank vault. So I turned up the next day, and there was this rather old wooden box that the painting was kept in in the bank vault. And she opened the lid of the box. The painting itself was wrapped in newspaper. And I saw it was the London Evening News from 1950, which was about the time it was last sold. And I wonder whether the box had actually been open many times since 1950. And I couldn't really believe the picture was there. And I sort of picked it up. It was in quite good condition. There was an inner frame around the picture, which looked 
very old, possibly 16th century, and specialists confirmed that it was that old. And then a more modern, probably early 20th century frame around that. And then on the back, there was red silk. And um, I thought that was surprising. We don't normally put red silk on the back of paintings. And when I got back to London and I consulted experts at the Victoria and Albert Museum, they said it was Italian silk of around 1600. And it was on this silk that Holmes had added his inscription telling us precisely what date he'd taken the painting. The fact that you think it hadn't been much looked at since it was acquired is curious because it was acquired by an art historian. Isabel Reyes Santos's husband was an art historian and it seems he had acquired it. So it's strange that it wasn't much looked at. It is perhaps strange. On the other hand, perhaps art historians don't actually want to talk about works in their own private collection. They're very happy to talk about works in other people's collection or in museums. So I suspect there was some possibly embarrassment about it. And he may have realised that there might be claims from Ethiopia, moral claims perhaps rather than legal claims, and he might not want it to be known that he had a valuable painting hanging above his sofa. But I think for most of the time it was hidden away. And I think I'm probably the only person in living memory to have seen the painting outside the owner's immediate circle and family. How extraordinary. You took photographs on that day when you first reported it in the art newspaper in 1998. We were yep. black and white. So yep. so it's only now that there are colour images of it available. Indeed. I mean, it seems difficult to imagine that an art publication <laughs> only published in black and white. But I'm afraid that was the case in 1998. It was very frustrating that I had colour photographs that we couldn't reproduce. Now that art historians have a good colour image, we're at least in a position to make much more of an educated guess, if you like, as to who painted it. And there are some sort of good contenders, aren't there? Quentin Matsai is one and others. So it could well be painted by a quite quite established master. Indeed. I mean, there there are a number of artists like Bouts and Eastenbrock and Matsis, as you say, uh, who it's been suggested could have painted it. But I think we'll get a much better idea. And I've already heard someone, a distinguished artist, or suggest that it might not be Flemish or Portuguese, but it could be German. So uh, the field is now open. And uh, we'll welcome any comments from readers who have serious ideas on this. Okay, you have an art historical task, listeners. Um, So, as you say, you have seen it. And you said it's in very good condition. Can you describe what it's like? I mean, it looks very luminous in the pictures. Yes. I mean, it's Christ holding his hands up in blessing and uh, he's got the crown of thorns and blood dripping down him. It's quite a sort of conventional religious image. I wouldn't say it's a masterpiece, but I think it's finely painted. But it's not only the artistic importance of the story... It's the historical importance and the fact that it's played an absolutely crucial role in Ethiopian history for roughly 350 years when it was there. And in historical terms, I can't think of all that many paintings which have actually, you know, played such an important role. And it's absolutely crucial for Ethiopia's history 
and they would love to get it back. Well, that's the big question, isn't it? Because we've talked a lot, you and I, about repatriation in terms of British museums. What's the position in terms of Portugal? There was an export stop put on this work in 2002, which means that the Portuguese state clearly value it. But what can happen in terms of its repatriation? Well, this is where the question of who painted it is important, because the Portuguese are restricting its export primarily because they believe it was by a Portuguese artist. Uh If, on the other hand, it turns out to have been painted by a Flemish or German artist, then the Portuguese might not feel that it was so important to keep it. So what do you think is the next step? I mean, do you think Ethiopia, as a result of this article and and the discussion around it, is likely to sort of amplify its claims for restitution? Yes, I think now that people in Ethiopia will be able to see the colour image and hear the story behind it and the importance, there's bound to be pressure for it to be returned. The question then would be whether it should be returned to the Ethiopian church or to the National Museum, who would be the rightful claimant. The question after that would be whether the Portuguese would allow it to be exported and perhaps most importantly of all, whether the owner wishes to sell it because it's owned by a private citizen in in Portugal. Indeed it is. Then the last question is, you've had discussions with the Ethiopian ambassador. Have you sent him an image of the work? Have you sent him this colour image or prompted him to read this article? Oh, yes. I mean, the, the Ethiopian embassy and other groups are very interested in it. And I think the story has not ended yet. Uh, It's a story with a fascinating past. And the question is, what will happen next? You heard it from Martin. Watch this space. Thank you, Martin. Thank you. You can read more on the Querata Reesu at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. Coming up, calls for the US Congress to limit AI copyright and China's struggling museums. But first, here's the news bulletin. A bill introduced by a member of the New York City Council would require the city to identify works of public art that depict figures who owned enslaved people or directly benefited economically from slavery. The bill is the first step to addressing and contextualising the racist history of these monuments. Sponsors of the bill hope that adding explanatory plaques to statues of historic figures or Confederate leaders will create educational opportunities and evidence of ethical accountability for New Yorkers and their institutions. Azerbaijan's seizure of control of the disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh in a lightning offensive last month, which sent tens of thousands of Armenian residents of the mountainous enclave that they call Artsakh fleeing to safety, precipitating a humanitarian crisis, has prompted dire predictions about the region's cultural heritage. The takeover by Azerbaijan and the dissolution of the Republic of Artsakh, announced by its Armenian leadership last week, is the latest chapter in a war that began in the 1980s and cultural disputes that stretch back centuries. Armenians are predominantly Christian, while Azerbaijanis who are associated with Turkey are mostly Muslim. According to a report by a United Nations mission on Monday, there's been no visible damage to public infrastructure, including cultural and religious structures so far. But last week, Shusha, a historic city whose cultural heritage is claimed by both Azerbaijanis and Armenians, but which was seized by Azerbaijan in 2020, was declared capital of culture of the Islamic world 2024 by a gathering of culture ministers held in Qatar. The announcement coincided with Armenians fleeing Nagorno-Karabakh en masse. 
And finally, Banksy's migrant child mural in Venice will be restored amid heated debate about whether the work should be saved or left to gradually deteriorate. Vittorio Scarbi, an undersecretary in the Italian Culture Ministry, has announced that the restoration will be funded by an important bank. The mural is displayed on a wall of a historic building in Venice's Dorso Duro district. It shows a child holding a flare in her hand and wearing a life vest slightly above the waterline. Created in 2019, the mural's just one of two by Banksy in Italian cities and has become a tourist attraction. It's deteriorated due to damp in the last four years. However, the question of whether or not to restore it has divided opinion. Some have argued for its removal to a museum or gallery, while the Italian street artist Alex Ermini argued that street art is transient and the work's changing patina makes it more poetic. You can read these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This October, the most exquisite decorative arts and interior decor from prominent collectors arrive at Christie's New York. The auction series, Rothschild Masterpieces, presents Maiolica from Renaissance Italy and Limoges enamel, among other art and objects that form the lavish interiors of the famed family's French homes. Immediately following, the grand finale of a series that began in the fall of 2022, the Anne and Gordon Getty collection, Wheatland, features old masters, Delftware and more from Anne Getty's childhood home, known as Wheatland. Experience a day in the life of these magnificent homes during the public exhibition at Christie's Rockefeller Centre Galleries in New York beginning the 7th of October. Find out more at christies.com. Welcome back. Now, artificial intelligence's impact on creative communities was one of the causes of the recently resolved dispute between film and television writers and entertainment companies. And in the art world too, there are deep concerns about the capacities of AI tools to exploit artists' work, undermine their authorship and threaten their livelihoods. A coalition of organisations representing writers, performing and visual artists and others involved in social justice issues named last Monday, the 2nd of October, the AI Day of Action, calling on the US Congress to enact a law that would ban corporations from copywriting art created with AI-enabled elements. The coalition behind the Day of Action consists of six groups and asked its members and the public to phone or email their members of Congress to block corporations from being able to obtain copyright registration for content largely created through AI rather than through artists, according to Leah Holland, campaign director for Fight for the Future, which is based in California. Daniel Grant, a reporter based in the US, told me more. Dan, we're talking this week because there has been an AI day of action. What was it about? A nonprofit organization called Fight for the Future, in combination with some other nonprofit groups representing writers, performers, visual artists, and others involved in social justice issues, named Monday, October 2nd, as a day to call on group members and the public at large to contact their representatives in Congress to make sure that. Artificial intelligence is not afforded copyright registration. They demand in their own words that corporations will keep having to hire human artists and creators if they want to hold copyrights. And you've looked into this in the past, basically. And up until now, there's been a fairly clear law in relation to copyright in terms of artworks or or creative works apparently made by machines, right? In the sense that this cannot be copyrighted. What can be received copyright registration has been a source of of, uh, contention for a while. Up until the recent instances with artificial intelligence, the biggest case was the monkey selfie. 
Right. That was an incident with about a dozen years ago when a wildlife photographer went to Indonesia to take photographs for a book that he was going to publish. While he stepped away from his equipment, a monkey um, named Naruta stepped in, looked into the lens and touched something that, in fact, created a photograph of itself. That that image was put into the book that this uh, wildlife photographer had created. And PETA, the animal rights group, brought a, a legal action against him, claiming that, you know, the monkey should have gotten this copyright. The Copyright Office in 2016 said, no, only a human being can do it. More recently, there have been a number of incidents where people using some sort of AI program have created images and they have not received copyright um, registration. That's the process by which the Copyright Office will make a uh, decision. It may be reviewed. And in one instance, it actually someone brought a, an action into a district court in Washington, D.C., again, finding that you cannot provide copyright to the creation of a machine. Right. Now, this has become a real area of contention in recent months. We've seen the debates around AI photography and these generative systems. But this sort of day of action and, and this group called Fight for the Future are really drawing attention to it. I mean, we've seen, obviously, the Hollywood writers and actors strike and so on. There is genuine anxiety amongst creative people about the role of AI in the making of art, and particularly its adoption by corporations, right? Well, what's interesting is that contacting one's member of Congress doesn't appear to be something that's um, so crucial right now because various congressional committees and various federal agencies themselves including the Copyright Office and the Federal Trade Commission, already are looking into artificial intelligence, particularly generative AI, to see what the problems are and if there's a role for government. And that's the real question, is that there's clearly a sense that something needs to be done, but what needs to be done? How do you protect the good things that AI is able to do without stifling it? And how do you protect the rights of copyright holders, particularly? Right. Among the groups that have been looking at this, there were Senate hearings in July. A Judiciary Subcommittee on Privacy, Technology and the Law had hearings with the idea of overseeing and establishing safeguards for artificial intelligence. The results of those meetings announced a um, legislative framework that should be established uh, to provide guardrails for artificial intelligence. There should be an independent oversight body ensuring legal accountability for harms, defending national security, promoting transparency and protecting consumers and children. Ultimately, um, this is a bipartisan issue because the two members of that group are a Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal and Republican Senator Josh Hawley, who probably don't agree on too many other things going on. <laughs> right, that's true. Yeah. But one of the interesting things, I guess, is that, you know, in current copyright law, it suggests that human creative control over the works is important and that there has to be sufficient human authorship, to use the terms in, in the guidelines. The problem is that that's becoming blurrier by the second, right? The more that AI becomes a creative tool as well as a corporate tool, those lines are becoming more and more hard to define. The question really is, is copyright law an adequate tool to rein in artificial intelligence? Right. When the, the Copyright Office itself has been soliciting opinions from artists, lawyers, and other interested groups to see what should be done, 
one intellectual property lawyer testified to that Senate subcommittee that it is not an effective tool. And his recommendation was to provide compulsory licensing so that all artists whose images are swept up in a web scraping process receive some form of payment. So it's recognized that the law is at best inadequate and perhaps is not terribly relevant. A number of these things may go up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court's going to have the same sort of troubles of deciding whether current law is up to the task. That's why various congressional committees and federal agencies are also looking at. Another Senate subcommittee on consumer protection, product safety, and data security has convened a subcommittee looking for transparency. They want to increase trustworthiness. The Federal Trade Commission wants to make sure that the use of generative AI does not stymie fair competition. And of course, the Copyright Office wants to look and see if, in fact, the copyright protections themselves are maintained for the, uh, the copyright holders. Right. You mentioned scraping there, web scraping. That's the big issue for artists in particular, isn't it? It's this idea that Carla Ortiz, who is an artist who is actually has filed a lawsuit against Stable AI, something that Getty have done, actually. This is a London-based company, Stable AI. Mm -hmm. She talks about this idea of how AI uniquely consumes and exploits the innovations of others. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's this sense that artists are seeing their work actively being exploited. People are mapping the exploitation. It's it's detectable. But it's so spiralling and it's so massive that it's difficult for them to keep control on it. It's certainly the case. Web scraping, other terms used are harvesting and logging, also take place when, in some instances, some AI programs can be given prompts to know what to look for, and others can simply find things without prompts. Yeah. Carlo Ortiz is part of that lawsuit against stable AI, but it's not the only lawsuit. There have been um, uh, numerous lawsuits filed in charging copyright infringement. During the summer, there were a couple of major lawsuits, one involving the comedians Sarah Silverman and another one involving the author John Grisham brought class action lawsuits against OpenAI, one of the two main programs in generative artificial intelligence. And as you mentioned, the lawsuit against Stable AI brought by several artists and separately by Getty Photographs are looking to see if they can put an end to what would seem to be copyright infringement. But well, the courts have to decide whether it is. Of course, one of the biggest problems for artists, or most artists at least, is that the means of seeking some sort of legislative action is going to cost them huge amounts of money. Most artists simply cannot afford to go to court. One instance that's kind of amusing, this past year, some program was used to record the voice of the rap singer Drake. And from that, a song was published called uh, Heart on My Sleeve. It's referred to as the fake Drake because Drake never had anything to do with it. But there were millions of plays on TikTok, Spotify, and YouTube. It was removed by Drake's record company. Drake's record company is a powerful organization. And as he said, individual artists are not so powerful and it's expensive to go after it. And the benefits, even if you win, uh, you don't win that much. Right. But are the agencies, is the US Copyright Office, is the Federal Trade Commission and so on capable of putting into place guardrails which will help artists? Because frankly, the courts don't often help the little person with no money who needs their work recognised, do they? There's not a long history of, of the little people being protected, frankly. 
it's not really clear at all whether they can ensure the protection of copyright holders because this is a, a new area. In a uh, ruling last August in U.S. District Court in Washington, an AI user named Stephen Thaler, using something he referred to as his creativity machine, had sought some images to be awarded copyright registration by the Copyright Office. It was denied. He brought it to district court, and the judge, Beryl Howells, affirmed the right of copyright to be done by humans. Copyright is designed to adapt with the times. Underlying that adaptation, however, has been a consistent understanding that human creativity is the sine qua non at the core of copyright, even as human creativity is channeled through new tools or onto new media. However, and this is what seemed interesting in her ruling, we are approaching new frontiers in copyright as artists put AI in their toolbox to be used in the generation of new and visual and other artistic works. So ultimately, she's recognizing that it seems like it's law right now, but maybe it won't be law. I think the moral of the story is that there will be changes, certainly in technology, and changes likely in governmental policy and the law. We don't know what they are, and I don't think that members of Congress or the directors of these federal agencies know where things are going or what should be those policies, so they're asking the public, what do you think? Well, we'll see what will happen. I suspect this is going to be fast moving. Dan, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read more on AI and its effect on art on the website and the app and listen to our AI special from the 28th of April this year. And finally, as China's economy boomed in recent decades, so too did the creation of museums across the country. But no longer. The fallout from Beijing's zero Covid policies alongside a global downturn and a collapsing property market in the country have prompted an economic crisis and some museums are struggling. In addition, China's museums face an increasingly chaotic censorship regime. I spoke to our correspondent in China, Lisa Movius, about what it means for the country's museum and art community. Lisa, before we go into the specifics of what's going on in the art world in China, can you set the scene economically in China? What's going on there? Because we've heard a lot in recent months about what could amount to a kind of economic crisis. Tell us more. Right. So as you've probably heard, the property sector in China has been facing a dilemma for the last several years. There have been talks since the 2000s about when and how the property bubble would finally pop. And I've heard a good analogy that it's better viewed as thousands of small bubbles than one giant bubble. So each property company, each city, each market has its own particular environment. But a couple of things that have to be taken into account is that there have been a lot of speculative buy to property. So a lot of rich people have bought several properties and a lot of poor people can only afford property if they buy these unmade properties based on just a promise and a contract. And so there's a couple huge companies that have been selling these unmade or half-made apartments and they need people to keep buying into them to be able to afford to uh, complete them. And the problem is that first Evergrande and now a country garden have not been able to continue to complete those kind of projects. And there's more and more of those all over the country, though these are two of the biggest ones. 
Right. So it's a bad sign for the market. And also the uh, shrinking population is problematic because you think people buy houses for their sons before they get married. But after, you know, 20 years of the one child policy, you have two grandparents and then two sets of parents who each have their own house in addition to the couple's houses. So there's a glut coming on. And then there's in smaller towns, there's already been like 50% of the apartments are speculative and so are not even occupied. Whoa, that's amazing. And of course, China is particularly reliant on property market, right? That, that was one of the yes. massive drivers of the economic boom. We've seen the skyscrapers. And even, I mean, that yes. remarkable fact that even in sort of regional capital cities, you had as many skyscrapers as you had in Beijing. It was an extraordinary building boom, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Correct. Right. And so effectively, if there's a problem in the property market, then then the economy generally gets hit very, very hard. Correct. As I said, this was always on the horizon. This shoe was always bound to drop, but it's now coming on top of the post-zero COVID era. And of course, as as you know, that everyone was expecting there to be a huge economic bump after three years of zero COVID, and especially last year of endless lockdowns. But people have become more conservative about the spending. There's not the same kind of revenge bump that everyone was hoping for. That's what I heard. That, that, that basically there was sort of the outlook that economists were were setting out was a reasonably optimistic one as China was emerging from the zero COVID policy. But then that quickly got mm-hmm. revised downwards. Is that right? Correct. So the mood here is still really quite strange. People are quite happy to go out. I think restaurants are doing pretty well, but sort of larger consumer spending is not seen the same. You know, F&B is not enough to drive an entire economy. And just walking home last night, you see so many people who are still just like sitting out on the street drinking cheap beers from Mini Mart instead of actually going and paying more at restaurants. Right. And to what extent is the museum boom that we've you've written about loads of times in in the art newspaper, (laughs) connected directly to the property boom? It's hard to say because I haven't crunched the numbers, but so many of the private museums that have popped up over the years have been, you know, over since like the late 2000s, I would say, there's been the real explosion of thousands of museums all over China and hundreds of those were private art museums. And so many of those were connected with property developments. And there are several reasons for that. A major one was that developers would get a cut on their taxes and extra access to land if they promised to put in some sort of social service, social good, and having an art museum was amongst the possible ways of doing that and probably the easiest way of doing that. Right. In addition to the property museums, there was, of course, like individual collector museums, but many of those individual collectors also had as part of their personal portfolios quite a lot of property. But there's always been this sort of curious balance in those sort of statistics that were coming out of the Chinese Museums Association. They were saying like 1,500 museums built between 2009 and 2014, I saw in your piece. Mm -hmm. But a lot of those aren't really museums. Is that right? So they're sort of white elephants, effectively. Mm -hmm. Well, that number includes both public and private museums. And leaving out of the discussion and the impact is how many city and provincial museums have got up. That number also includes non-art museums. So things like history museums, um, natural sciences museums, all sorts of public institutions. And even the art ones, many of them are more for antiquities than for contemporary or modern art. So you have to imagine that there is a range of things as well as, of course, a range of quality. Right, absolutely. So tell us what's happening now. So we've had this boom, there were museums popping up everywhere. And what's going on right now? 
So the boom already slowed a couple of years ago, but there has still been a trickle of things, some of them that have been in the pipeline for a long time, like the Start Museum in Shanghai or the Tag Museum in Qingdao uh, that opened in the last couple of years. Uh, those were planned over a decade ago, but for various reasons had their openings delayed. New projects have been happening, but by and large, they are expansions of older properties. For example, M Woods just opened in Chengdu. And then smaller projects that are really more like galleries, but museums in name only have been opening up. Uh, some of those are more speculative and actually selling properties. And then others are just, you know, very, very small private museums that, again, are like a couple of rooms. Right. Okay. So there's a broad scope of museums, but quite a few of them are either closing or being adapted or in a way revising their ambitions. Is that right? So the slowdown that happened a couple of years ago has seen an uptick ever since the ending of the programming at the Times Museum Guangzhou, which is one of the top private museums in mainland China. It hasn't been that many closures when you look at it compared to the hundreds of private museums around the country. We've had the OCAT chain closed down and Times Museum and then others downsize or move or other sorts of shifts of their business model. The Long Museum sale, of course, is the latest shockwave. And we do not know what that's going to mean for that institution long term. So that's that's a giant question mark. At the same time, we don't want to overemphasize how important Long Museum is. It's one of many, many big museums in Shanghai. Can you explain more about the, the Long Museum sale? Because basically that means that's effectively a, quite a prominent collection, but it is selling off mm -hmm. elements of that collection in auctions and so on. So Long Museum opened in 2013 with its first branch in Pudong, and then a few years later with its main West Bun Shanghai branch, and then a few years later it launched in Chongqing, which is a municipality next to Sichuan province. It had plans to open in Wuhan, but those have seemed to have been shelved indefinitely. The Long Museum founders, who is entrepreneur Liu Yitian and his wife Wang Wei, have been among the most prolific collectors of uh, both contemporary art and antiquities, not just in China, but in the whole world. So for quite a lot of the galleries in China and in Asia, Long Museum has long been their top client. And they sort of count on Wang Wei and Liu Yitian to come to all the fairs and to buy a couple of things at, a, at every event. Very, very reliable and very prolific. So very important to the market as well as to the museum scenes. Right. Their shows have been a mixed bag. They do a lot of gallery back shows. They have almost no staff, just a very, very tiny staff. There's no curatorial team. There's no programming there. It's big collection, big shows, and that's about it. So their footprint in the sort of like public discussion is not as big as even some much smaller museums. But on the market and just in terms of the overseas statement purchases, they're very important. To go into the sale, the announce it's been rumored for a few months, but it was announced quite recently that they will be doing a sale of almost 50 works at Sotheby's Hong Kong. As of this point, it hasn't been formally announced, but we've confirmed that there is at least one more sale that's in the works uh, from of both uh, major and smaller works from their very expansive collection, right. uh, which numbers into probably several thousand, maybe even tens of thousands of works. Okay. So as yet, the motivations for those sales aren't completely clear, but it's a bellwether of the kind of uncertainty among Chinese museums at the moment, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. It could be a bellwether. It could be an outlier. We don't know. Interesting. Tell us about the, the climate among Chinese museums and, and galleries at the moment, because in the article you say that the art world is sort of reeling from the zero COVID policy. Correct. Is that in multiple senses, economically, but also curatorially, if you like? 
curatorial, economically, and just psychologically. So institutions in Shanghai were closed for almost all of 2022. In the rest of the country, it really depends. Beijing was kind of closed for a month and open for a month and closed for a month sort of situation. And then for everyone, we spent a year having to have these extreme like, you know, tests every day and checking in everywhere we went. And so that was really a deterrent to people going out and seeing shows. And what I've heard is that this year, even though everything's been lifted, according to the government, we're all back to normal. And please forget about last year. People have lost the propensity to go out so much. So like when I was in Beijing for their gallery weekend, I was just surprised to see at how quiet 798 was compared to in previous years. And that's what they said, that people just don't come out and hang out the way they used to. 798 is the gallery and museum center in Beijing. So it has many large galleries like Continua and Long March and... Etc. And then also the UCCA Center for Contemporary Art and M. Woods are there. Right. So the sort of lack of buzz there during the gallery weekend gave you a sense of this sort of general reluctance among art visitors generally, but also the art world to, to go out and see things and, and meet up and everything else? I wouldn't say there was a lack of buzz during gallery weekend. It was just not as trafficked as it used to be. So all the galleries said that this was the best they seated all year, but compared to last year on the average weekend, it was still pretty quiet because the whole area is just very popular with the the local Wang Hongs, the online celebrity wannabes who are always like taking pictures and hanging out. So it used to be a very, very popular destination. And it still is just not in the same kind of throngs. Like it used to be, you could barely walk down the street there. Now it's much more chill. Okay, interesting. Tell us more about the aspect that you allude to in the article about censorship because as you say it's mostly anecdotal at this stage but you have kind of from those anecdotes a sense that things are tightening a bit tell us more right i mean there's a lot of stories that i'm not at liberty to share but there have been quite a few agonizing over what to do and horror stories and problems and challenges that various people have shared with me over the last couple of years and anecdotally it just seems like it has gone beyond it used to be it was still a gray line like you had to self-censor a fair amount if you wanted to be safe, but you could also push the line a little bit more if you were willing to be a little bit risky. Now it just seems that the gray line has gotten very, very wide. Right. So it's really hard to say what's going to get you in trouble. And even people who are trying to tread very, very carefully will find themselves in hot water, really quite surprised at something that would normally be considered very innocent or would be able to slide under the radar of the censors. Now things are being much more scrutinized, and it does feel anecdotally like it's tightening. But as my source says in the article, it's not the government that's the biggest worry now, it's the public. Yeah, this is intriguing. So effectively, members of the public are seeing art exhibitions and acting then as a kind of informant to local authorities and pointing them in the direction of the galleries, and then those galleries are experiencing trouble. Yes. They're not even just contacting the authorities. They're just posting online and then whipping up their followers into a frenzy sometimes. So the government might be say like, we actually have no problem with this, but the public has a problem. So maybe you should take it down lest you have like mobs of people come in here. And and in fact, there was an example, wasn't there at UCCA of a visitor pointing out the problems with the work and, and them being instructed to remove the work. Correct. And that that case was of a uh, World War II kamikaze plane. Right. So any kind of depictions of World War II that might seem as vaguely pro-Japanese, something that even like vaguely resembles, say, the rising sun, could get a, get a gallery, a museum in hot water. 
right. because the you know anti-Japanese nationalism remains very strong. There was this intriguing point made in the article that where the artists who were so celebrated in the 1990s, artists that were sort of part of this kind of opening up of China that became internationally celebrated, still are, mm-hmm. even they may be falling foul of the censors now, which does seem like a big shift. Correct, because they depict things like references to the culture revolution, not directly, but opaquely, and things like Maoist imagery. And now those can be viewed out of context as problematic. I wanted to also explore this interesting point about the fact that a lot of the exhibitions that are doing well or are being shown more often than others are imported shows of Western art, especially after through that generation that we just talked about and others, there was such a sort of focus on a local community or a, or a national community of artists emerging from China in earlier times. Tell us more about this. Is that an example of a sort of conservatism that's creeping in as a further conservatism? It is both conservatism and opportunism because it is often these big state-owned companies that don't have any background in the arts, they don't have any local curators, they don't really have much of a cultural footprint starting out. But what they can do is from a big Western museum, import a pre-curated, pre-approved, pre-censored in a way, show of old masters, something from the canon that they can just present, translate as they like. And it's a very effective artotainment. And these things sell massive tickets. They are very popular. There have been more of them that I can keep track of anymore just in Shanghai. And I'm sure that after Shanghai, they go to smaller cities and also do quite well there. So in smaller numbers, they're nice to have. It's certainly great for people to be able to see, you know, these kind of old masters from all over the world, but they become increasingly dominant of the exhibition offerings in China. And that's what's worrying. And and that's intriguing in the context of, again, the economic crisis, which we've heard a lot about the idea of a fall in foreign investment in China. But that doesn't seem to be happening culturally from what you're saying. Well, I wouldn't say that these these shows are necessarily foreign invested. What it often is, is like a tourism company will open up a space that is just a space. And then they will pay, say, the uh, museum or a cultural bureau in France or Spain or the Netherlands to send over a show and, you know, put it in pre-approved, pre-curated and sell tickets for about 30 US dollars, 200 RMB a pop. And it's very profitable for everyone involved. Okay, well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Very welcome. You can read Lisa's article on the website or the app. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. The Week in Art is produced by Julie Mahalska, Alexander Morrison, and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Martin, Dan, and Lisa. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.